Uh, It's great to be here together today. My name is David. I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at the church, and it's my privilege to continue us in our Both And series that we've been tracking uh, along for the last few weeks. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 16 to 21 this morning. And as I said, we've been in a series called Both And, and for the last few weeks, weeks, we're looking at this tension that we sometimes experience when, when it comes to God and the Bible. It's just, we're coming alongside the Bible, we're reading it, and, and we come across something where, where God teaches one idea as true and another idea as true, but those two ideas seem to be opposed to each other, like they don't work together. And, and I don't know about you, but when I come across that, it seems kind of strange, doesn't it? Like, how can this be true and this be true in the Bible? How can the Bible teach both of these things as true? And, and if you've ever come across that reality, you've ever experienced that tension, you've come face to face with the reality that with God and the Bible, not everything is either or. Sometimes it's both and. Sometimes it's both and, not either or. And both ends, they're not, they're not always easy to deal with, are they? I mean, for me, they're not always easy to deal with. When I, when I read the Bible or I go through life, sometimes I experience this tension that's not always easy to experience. Like when I go to Ikea, okay? So when I go to Ikea... Um, Every time I go there with my wife, Catherine, I experience this both-and tension because I really, really like Ikea. I do. I love their food. I mean, who doesn't like cheap food that tastes good? I mean, what's to complain about? Or I, I really love the furniture there. We have a bunch of it in our, our house, but I'm an in-and-out shopper. I like to go and shop for one thing. I know what I'm going to get. I go for that specific purpose. I go buy it, and I get out as fast as possible. And if you've ever been to Ikea, then you know you can't do that. You can't do that because the way they've designed their store, and it's it's a brilliant actual design of a store layout is that you have to actually walk through every part of the store to get to what you want to buy and that you're kind of boxed in and it's like a maze and so you can't just go in and out. You have to walk through the entire store and it's a brilliant store layout. It's a genius uh, store layout but for an in and out shopper like myself, it is frustrating. It is maddening, especially when I go with my wife because I have to pray for patience and strength to navigate the store but she's a browser. She's a browser. She likes to look at every single thing. Oh, I love this curtain. Look at this table set, none of which we can afford, but we always go and I have to pray for this this strength to to endure that moment, to be patient, to be a loving husband. And so going to Ikea is this both-and thing for me. I both like their furniture and I struggle with how they force you to walk through the entire store just to buy some napkins. It's hard. It's not easy. I experience this both-and tension in my life. No, but have you ever noticed when you're at Ikea that they have these arrows on the floor? And they're everywhere. The arrows are all throughout the store, and those arrows are there for a purpose. The store, the people who designed the store put those arrows there to guide us through the store, to point us in the direction that we need to go so that we can end up at the place that we're supposed to end up, so that we don't get lost, um, but that we end up to the exact spot that we are supposed to be in. And so they gave us those arrows to help us show us the way and guide us. And much like the arrows in Ikea, God has given us something to point us in the right direction. God has given us something to guide us through life. God has given us something to show us the way to himself and to living the life that he wants for us, the life that he actually created us and wants for us to have. And this something we can trust because the God who stands behind it and is revealed in it is the purpose of this something. And we're going to talk about that something this morning as Peter unpacks for us uh, a major issue that this church is, he's writing to are facing. And so 
This is what Peter says as he begins the opening part of the main body of his letter. He says this, starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter begins this main part of his letter by by laying out for us the major issue that is facing these churches he's writing to. And the big issue facing these churches we find in verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the big issue on this these churches are facing, the battleground place that this, these churches are wrestling with is the power and coming of Jesus. We're not talking about here the, the first coming of Jesus, but we're actually ca- talking about the second coming of Jesus when he's going to come in power and glory and he's going to destroy evil and he's going to set all things right at the end of days. This is the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus that Peter is talking about. The battleground in these churches at this moment, in this time, was Jesus' return and whether or not it was actually going to happen. And it was an issue because what we know from the Bible is that there were some teachers that had shown up in these churches and, and they, were, they were trying to discredit the, the apostolic message, the message of Jesus' chosen messengers, the disciples. And they were saying that what they were teaching about Jesus' return was a myth, that it, that it was a legend, that it wasn't true, um, that it was something that they had made up and that it appeared true on the surface, but it really wasn't a, a true statement, that what they were teaching was untrue. And so they were trying to discredit Peter's message so that their message could take root in these churches and take hold and guide and sustain the life of these churches. And their message was simple. Jesus' return is a myth. So you can go on living however you want. There will be no consequences at the end of time because if Jesus isn't coming back, then there's going to be no future judgment. And if that means that he's not coming back, then guess what? You're not going to be held accountable for how you live here and now. So go eat, drink, and be merry. Pursue whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Just live for pleasure. Live however you want because there's going to be no consequences for it at all. Why? Because Jesus isn't coming back because it's not going to happen. And so Peter, in verse 16, he pushes back and he says, hey, we did not make anything up when we shared this about Jesus coming back. This is not a myth that we're sharing. Our message is that Jesus is coming again in power and glory and he's going to set all things right. You say we made it up? That's not true. God revealed this message to us. God revealed this message to us. And that's what he says as he moves along in verse 16 to 18. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain." 
And so when Peter says we were eyewitnesses to his majesty, he's talking about a firsthand experience that he had of Jesus, something that he saw with his own eyes and heard with his own ears, something that blew his mind, something that was amazing, something that all these years later he is now going to bring the church back to and say, I had this experience. God broke into the human situation. He broke into time and history. He revealed something unbelievable and he spoke and this experience that Peter's talking about, we find in one of the stories about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection uh, called the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 17, verses 1 to 8, it's the story of the transfiguration. And here Peter's going to sum that experience up by saying this. He says, I saw the glory of Jesus with my own eyes and heard the voice of God with my own ears. God the Father pulled the veil back and revealed Jesus in all his beauty, in all his glory, in all his majesty. He transformed Jesus before our eyes. Jesus' face was changed so that it shone like the sun and his clothes were dazzling white. He was radiant in his glory. None of it was held back. I saw it with my own eyes. It was a amazing. It was mind-blowing. It was awesome. But I didn't just see Jesus. I saw it, but I also heard the voice of God speak. I heard the majestic glory, which is a a name in the Bible for God the Father. Uh, He says, I heard God the Father say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He, He heard the very voice of God speak with his own ears. And so he says to the church, our message It doesn't come from us. We didn't make this up. The experience we had of Jesus on the mountain, that's where our message comes from. Everything we taught about Jesus' return, we taught because God revealed it to us. It was a direct revelation from God to us. Everything we taught has its source in God. And this transfiguration moment is a big moment because God speaks into the human situation to reveal himself and his will. In this moment, we see that Jesus' glory was revealed, that Peter and John and James, the other disciples who were there, they saw the greatness and the glory of Jesus with their own eyes. We see that Jesus' identity was declared, that when God the Father spoke those words to Jesus, it was him saying, this is my son, he's the Messiah. Everything that has been promised is coming true in him. And so his glory was revealed, his identity was declared, but Jesus' return in this moment was also foreshadowed. Because the transfiguration is not just about revealing the glory and identity of Jesus, it was also a preview of what would come at the end of time. It was God showing a a picture of what that was going to look like at the end of history when Jesus was coming back. And so the glory that was revealed on the mountain was also the power and the glory that that we're all going to experience when Jesus comes back. And one of the disciples, John, who was there with Peter and saw this and heard this, he actually writes about this moment uh, using the same imagery, using the same kind of experience that came from this moment in the last book of the Bible called Revelation. He has this vision and he writes this in Revelation 1 verse 12. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And so what you see here is what, if you read the Matthew account, is that the same language, the same imagery to describe the beauty and the glory of Jesus is used here. Jesus' face shines like the sun. He's radiant in his, his, his clothing and in his presence. And so Peter and John and James, they had this experience and what happened on the mountain is a foreshadow of this moment that we just read when Jesus will come again in power and his full glory will be unveiled for everyone to see that it will be unmistakable and we will fall on our knees and worship at the king who has returned. And so Peter's pushback is that our message comes from God. God revealed it to us. God showed it to us. It came directly from God. And, and sometimes you need that from God, right? Sometimes the only thing that we need or that we're desiring can come from God, that God has to move, that God has to reveal it for us to see and know. Like for myself, um, I've had a hard time uh, understanding or grasping the unconditional love of God, the Father, towards me. Knowing what I know about myself and knowing the things I've done or had happened to me, it's been a very big struggle for me to, to, to fully grasp the, the idea that God loves me for me. Not because of what I do or don't do, not because I'm really great at something or I do really poorly at something, that his love is always the same, that he loves each of us with this unconditional, never-ending, never-failing kind of love. And for me, that's been extremely hard to get because I know me and, and sometimes it's hard to even like me as myself. And so I, I think of this God who loves me unconditionally and I'd prayed for years and I'd asked him, God, help me to understand this more. Help me to be more rooted in this. Help me to understand this wonderful love that is talked about in your Bible. And I had some victories, but it wasn't until I had our son Levi. And I remember this moment where I was holding my newborn son in my hand and I was talking to him and he's wriggling and probably doesn't understand a thing I'm saying, but I'm talking to my son and I said to him, buddy, I love you and I'll never stop loving you. I may not like everything that you've, you'll do. I probably won't agree with everything you'll do in your life. I'll probably be upset with you many times in my life, but I will never stop loving you. And in a moment it clicked, and God revealed to me, Dave, this is what my, life, my love for you is like. God had to reveal that to me. I needed something from God to actually lead me to the place I wanted to go because just reading it in the Bible and knowing it in my head wasn't working. I needed something more. I needed God to break into my situation and speak and reveal, and he did. And this is what Peter's getting at in verses 16 to 18, is that God broke into his situation, broke into his life, and he had a message that Jesus' return is, is, is true, and it came directly from God. And so Peter's experience of Jesus authenticated his message about Jesus. It carries weight because Jesus Peter saw it for his own eyes. He experienced it in his own experience. And so his experience of Jesus on that mountain authenticated his message about Jesus, but it also pointed Peter to the wonder and the glory of who Jesus is and the reality of his return. And so Peter talks about this mind-blowing experience, but notice he doesn't stop there. He doesn't end with experience. He moves beyond experience to what he says is more sure. In verse 19, he says this, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. And so that phrase, something more sure, means something certain, something you can build on, rely upon, and trust. 
And so the something sure that we have is what God has spoken through the prophets, what Peter calls the prophetic word, the message that God spoke through his prophets. And Peter says, you know, experience is good. Experience is a good thing. It can be powerful. It can be meaningful. It can, it can change you. It can do something within you that knowledge cannot do. But he says, um, but experiences happen in a moment and they fade. And then we have to chase another experience and another experience. Um, and experiences are subjective and they can't always be relied on. And so Peter says, we need something more. We need something more certain. We need something that we can build our lives on. And he tells us what that is in verses 19 to 21. He says, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So two things leap out at us from this. The first is that, again, Peter emphasizes that his message comes from God. He says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And so he says what is written down in the Bible it isn't some product of some human imagination, some human interpretation of what they experienced or, or saw, that actually the source of what is written down in the Bible is God himself, that God stands behind it, that God is the author of the scriptures. But notice what he says is that what is written down in the Bible isn't a product of human ideas or thoughts or interpretation, but he says our message comes from God through people. Our message comes from God through people. He says men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. And so in other words, what Peter's saying here is that when the prophets spoke, they spoke God's words as the Holy Spirit moved in them and moved through them. And so here's what this means is that God is the source of all prophecy, but he chooses to speak that prophecy through humans, through us. God makes that choice that he wants us to, to know him. He wants us to know his will. He wants us to, to guide us in the way that we should go. And he makes a choice to reveal that. And then he makes the choice to reveal that through humans, through people. And so everything the prophets spoke and what was eventually written down in the Bible, what we have in our hands, what we teach from every single week here, finds its source in God but is communicated through humans. And through the Bible, God speaks into the human situation to reveal himself and his will. And the Bible, it's unlike any other book. It's the best-selling book of all time. There's no book like this. The Bible is God's word written. It's God speaking his truth to us in human words. The Bible is God's word written. And this confronts us with the both and that is the Bible. Because the Bible is a divine book, but it's also a human book at the exact same time. The divine and the human work together in a mysterious way to bring to us what we hold in our hands, what we lean our lives against, what we trust, what we should be building our lives on. So the Bible is this divine and this human book. The Bible is a divine word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed. And when that, what that means is, is that the Bible is a product of the creative activity of the Holy Spirit. That it stresses the divine origin and the divine authority of the Bible. That God, uh, in, through the Holy Spirit, breathed this book to life. That the words and what was written 
came from God and that his authority stands behind it, that we can build our lives under it. We should be living under the authority of God's word. And so all scripture is God-breathed and the divine part of the Bible helps us because the God who is behind it and speaks in it is, can be trusted. As the creator of life, he knows how things work best and in his grace, he's given us a, a book to guide us in the way that we should go. He's revealed himself and shown us the way to know him and to how we can live the life he wants for us. Uh, Numbers 23.9 says, God is not a human that he cannot lie. And so God is trustworthy. He will not lie. He will not try and deceive you and he will not lead you into deception. And so the Bible is a divine word, but it's also a human word. The Bible is human because God worked with human authors to write the Bible. And so again, God the Holy Spirit worked within the Old Testament prophets and through their lives and circumstances in such a way that they spoke God's words. The Holy Spirit was active in shaping the thoughts and the imaginations of the biblical writers and guiding them in the actual writing of the Bible. They spoke God's words using their own personalities, using their own style, based on the context they were in, their background, their vocabulary. They spoke God's words and all of that in their own way. And so God didn't sit there and dictate to the, the writers of the Bible. He didn't tell them exactly what to say, but he worked with them in a mysterious way and guided them to write what they wrote so that the very words they wrote are God's words through humans to us. That's mind-blowing, that this living book of the living God is his word to us, and he's revealed himself and his will to us in grace. And so the human part of the Bible matters just like the divine part because God spoke into a human context, into time and history with human words and human language. The language of the Bible reflects the cultural and historical limitations of the writers. That's why some of the things that we read in the Bible don't make sense from our modern scientific or, or medicinal or viewpoints is that some of those things don't line up because the Bible is rooted in a context, in a, in a culture with, with writers and authors who lived in that context and culture. And that's why whenever we read the Bible, the, knowing the context is absolutely important. My hermeneutics prof taught me a ton of how to study the Bible and, and dig into the context. But he, the one thing that stuck with me more than any other is he said the three most important words when you're reading the Bible are context, context, context. Can we say that together? Context, context, context. When you're reading the Bible, you can't just pick Bible verses out because every text, everything that was written was in a human situation. And so we need to know who the author was and why was he writing what was the situation that was happening to the people that they were writing to? What does it say about God and what's going on in that time frame? What is the, the cultural and historical situation that's going on all around when this is happening? So we need to know the context. Context, context, context. When you read the Bible. And all this comes together to make the Bible what it is, a divine and human book where God speaks to us and reveals himself to us through humans and what they wrote. And because the Bible is the place where God reveals himself in his will, Peter says, you will do well to pay attention to it. You would do well to pay attention to the Bible. It's wise to pay attention to this something better and something sure, something that you can build your life on, something that is certain and comes from God. Peter says, you do well to pay attention to this. 
because there's a lot of things we can pay attention to, but Peter says there's one thing that is sure, one thing that we can rely on to guide us and show us the way, and that is the Bible, because of the God who stands behind it. It's like an arrow. The Bible is like an arrow showing us the way to God and showing us to the, way, the way to live the life that he created us to live and wants us to have. And because God stands behind the Bible and is revealed in it, it means two things for us. The first, it means we need to build well. See, what we build our lives on matters. It matters. And Jesus taught this at the end of his most famous sermon that he ever gave, the Sermon on the Mount. And what he said at the end of that message bears so much weight for us this morning. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine, so what he's just taught, and does them will be like a wise man who builds a house on a rock. And then he goes on just a little bit later and he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man building on sand. And so Jesus himself, he says that there's two choices in what we build our lives on. We can build it on something or someone other than God. We can build our life on some story or some grand narrative or something or someone other than God. But if we do that, we're building our lives. It's like building our lives on sand. And the ground will shift and what we build will crash down when the storms of life hit. Or he says we can build our lives on God and what he says is in the Bible. And he says if we do that, Jesus says we're building our life on something solid, something unshakable, something that will stand up even though the, the wind and the waves and the storm comes and hits your life, that your house will stand, your life will stand because you're building it on something so much stronger than something else that's out there that you could build it on. And so Jesus is saying that when we know his word and then we go and put it into practice, which is really important, when we actually take what he teaches and live it out in our life, it's like building on a rock, an unshakable rock that will stand up. And so we build well when we put the Bible as the authority for our life. We seek to know it, we seek to live by it because it's an arrow pointing us to something better. So we build well, but we also need to read well. If you notice in this passage, Jesus is the focus. What Peter writes in this passage directs us to the truth about Jesus. And this opens up the end goal of what the Bible is all about. So we don't just read the Bible, we read the Bible to know the God behind it. We read the Bible to know the God of the Bible. And Jesus talked about this in John 5, and this is really convicting to me. He confronted the religious elite and he was standing in this crowd and he was before, the Pharisees were before him and, and he says to them, you search the scriptures, you know them inside and out, but the one they're all about is standing right before you and you're completely missing him. That's heavy. And so Jesus is saying, you can read the Bible and miss the whole point of it, which is to know God. Because the Bible is not an end, it's a means to an end. See, the end goal of reading the Bible is to know the God who stands behind it and is revealed in it. And so worship and transformation through an encounter and a relationship with the living God of the Bible is the goal. And Paul Tripp, he's this writer and pastor that I really appreciate and he puts it so well. He says, this is the ultimate purpose of the Bible. This has to be so because the deep drama of this broken world and the image bearers that inhabit it, which is us, is a drama of worship. The gospel narrative is all about the legacy and restoration of true worship, the thing for which we were given breath, the worship of God. The story of the word of God contains, guarantee, or guarantees a time when all creation will bow in worship of God, and grace's work is to reclaim the deepest desires, passions, and thoughts and motive of our heart for God. 
This confronts us with the fact that the content and theology of the word of God is not an end in itself, but must be viewed as a means to an end. He goes on to say the ultimate purpose of the word of God is not theological information, but heart and life transformation. The end goal of reading the Bible is a radically transformed life through a relationship with the God who stands behind it. And so the Bible is a book that points us to Jesus. It's a a book that helps us to see Jesus for who he really is. And when that happens, it, it leaves us in awe. When you really encounter the living Christ, the God that we have read about, the God who is glorious and is full of majesty, when you really meet him, your knees shake, your hands tremble, you're in awe, and you can't help but worship. See, seeing Jesus for who he is really will leave us in awe and it will change us and stir our affections for him and we will become transformed. C.S. Lewis writes this great series called The Chronicles of Narnia and there's a bunch of great snapshot scenes that I just always speak to me of greater things, of, of, of beautiful things and, and in the Chronicles of Narnia the, there's a lion named Aslan and, and, and that is kind of the Jesus type figure in, in the story. And there's this conversation that happens in the first book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe between two of the main characters, uh, Lucy and Susan, and two talking beavers named Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver tells us in that conversation who Aslan is. He says, he's the king of the wood and son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And Susan says, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver says, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or they're just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, Aslan in this story is so awe-inspiring. He's so powerful and beautiful that the characters in this story They're like, you can't meet him without your knees shaking and trembling. And Jesus is the same. He's the king. He is the king. And he's awe-inspiring. In the book of Colossians, it says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in in everything he might be preeminent. He might be first. He might be supreme. See, Jesus is the king. He's the name above all names. He's not safe, but he's entirely good. And when we take the Bible in our hands and we come to it with a humble posture and we ask to meet this living king, he will come and he will meet you in his pages and he will change you from the inside out. He will buckle your knees. He will blow your mind because he is that kind of God. And so we don't just read the Bible. We read it to know the God who stands behind it and the one who is revealed in it. And so if you want more of God, if you want to know this God who would give up everything for you, who would die on a cross and rise again so that you, through faith, could know him, if you want to know this God, you have a guide that will show you. You have something to point you to him. And so this is something you can trust. This is something you can build your life on. This something is God's word. 
a divine and human book where God speaks, where God reveals, and where we, we can encounter the living God. And that's a beautiful thing. What grace. Let's pray. God, I love you so much. I love you because in your mercy and out of your love, you chase every single one of us down because you want to reveal yourself to us and you want to make known to us the wonder and beauty of who you are and the wonder and beauty of the life that you want to give us, that you created us to have. And so we thank you as one people that this living God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who is preeminent, the one who is infinitely beautiful, the one who is the lion and the lamb, offers himself to us and says, come to me, I want to know you and be known by you. And so Jesus, we want to come, we want to know you as you are, as you have been revealed in your scripture. And so we pray that we would be people of the book, that we would be people who love spending time in your word. I pray for each person here that your Bible would come alive to them, God, that your word would speak in mighty thunder to each person and would direct their gaze to the one it's all about, Jesus. And that we would be a people who know the Bible and put it into practice and are changed because we know the God who stands behind it and is revealed in it. We thank you, God, for this grace. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.